welcome to the Jason and Scott Show, your source for the latest news and trends in the e-commerce industry. Featuring host Jason Retail Geek Goldberg, SVP of Commerce at Razorfish, and Scott Wingo, founder and executive chairman of Channel Advisor. Here are Jason and Scott. Hey, welcome to the Jason and Scott Show. This episode is being recorded live from the NRF Big Show. We want to thank the folks at NRF for hosting us. As usual, I'm here with your co-host, Scott Wingo. Hey, Jason, and welcome Jason and Scott Show listeners. We have a really exciting guest on the show, the one, the only, Scott Silverman. Scott has a storied career. That means he's been at this for a very long time uh, in e-commerce over the last 15-plus years. He's currently a principal at Scott Silverman Associates, and he's also the co-founder of the Global E-Commerce Leaders Forum. On top of that, he also advises several startups in the e-commerce arena. He's had long stints at shop.org. He co-created Cyber Monday, uh, and he's a Steelers fan. We're just learning here this morning. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I... uh one of the most exciting things about being on this show is I've been, I have this opportunity to say hi to one of your listeners, longtime listeners, Jeff Bezos. So I want to say hi, Jeff. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. Thanks. Yeah, he'll, uh, he's usually one of the first people to download, so you'll, he'll definitely get that message soon. And you guys need to talk really fast because I listen in one and a half speed. So it's really <laughs> weird to hear you guys talking so slowly. That's crazy because we do talk so fast that I actually have to <laughs> slow the recording down to 75%. So. We're balancing it out. There we go. <laughs> cool. Before we jump into it, let's set the stage here. We are in a what could be best described as a podcast fishbowl in the middle of an innovation lab. Uh, within my eyesight, I've got a robot arm, a some kind of a robot that wanders around uh, shelves. What's that one called, Jason? Uh, that's tracks. Tracks. T R A X. And uh, it's pretty exciting. It's uh, I think it really fits in with the vibe of our show. We're right here in the middle of a curated uh, innovation experience that NRF put together in the clubhouse. So uh, I think it's really cool, and we're excited to be here. And what could be more innovative than the Jason and Scott Show podcast? I know. Look, um, and then uh, let's back up a little bit. Last night, uh, you know, very excited for you and proud. You won a big award, and you were at a gala event. Tell do, us about yeah. that. Well, I, I tend to do a gala. I know you're about modest, so let's let's hear the real story. Yeah. Uh, well, the NRF actually does this very cool thing every year. Um, they recognize 25 uh, influential people that have had a, a hopefully favorable effect on retail, and so they divide it into these categories: the power brokers, the givers, the innovators. Uh, and I was very honored to be uh, one of the influencers that was recognized on the NRF the list. I heard there's a backstory. They had a uh, one of the folks dropped out, uh, and you were next on the list. So that was, uh, that was good. That I, I think that's true, and he, I think he's going to be a guest uh, later today. So uh, make sure you tune in for that podcast. <laughs> Just kidding. And, and I was super proud of you because all the show, you know, they were putting up those pictures, and it was very red carpety, and everyone was black tie. Boom! There was Jason not wearing a tie. So it was total mavericky. So I was, I was very impressed by that. I thought that was going to slide under the radar screen until ta- uh, till, till Scott used his big. Uh, social media presence to out me, um, but it was it was like me and the CEO of Nike were the two guys without ties. I just want to find out what your wife's going to say because my wife always like if I can if my wife doesn't find out I'm good or maybe your mom your mom listens to the podcast so you could yeah. be yeah so my wife could wouldn't be have dangerous. found out had you not just outed me. <laughs> 
Cool. So you're on a roll this year because you won the predictions as I was listening earlier uh, this week. Like, and I, I to take nothing away, I'm very proud of the NRF uh, recognition. I'm I'm very grateful and uh, probably undeserving, but I'm I'm even more proud to have narrowly edged out Scott Wingo. Um, in the voting, although I have a number of listener comments have disputed our scoring. So, okay, hmm. I haven't I haven't seen those. Uh, okay, cool, Scott. We're excited to have you on here. Let's let's start by just going a little background for the folks that don't know you. How did you get into e-commerce or even retail? And let's go back to college. What did you study, and how did you get to where you are today? Uh, so uh, I am a Pittsburgher. That's hence the being a Steelers fan. Uh, I grew up there and went to University of Pittsburgh. Uh, had a degree in political science, which, as like as we hear from many of your guests, lots of zigging and zagging into this industry. Um, I had this theory of just study what you find interesting and passionate about, and then figure out what you want to do. Um, it, I figured out that I wanted to be in PR, so I uh, moved to Washington D.C. I actually had an internship in the White House um, under the George Bush the first. Uh, and then moved into a couple trade associations in the telecommunications industry, worked for some PR firms, um, including one called Fleischman Hillard. On, uh, and most interestingly there, it was on the AOL account. These are the early days of them sending out CDs. And uh, from there, I saw an ad in, you may recall, the Industry Standard, the old magazine of the Internet, for NRF having a director of internet retailing. And I thought that sounded really cool, so I applied. This was in 1999. Uh, you probably I, knew about the NRF because they're I, pretty big in Washington, right? Yeah, it's, pretty it's big in, in lobbying and PR circles. They're pretty well known. I think everyone else in the internet was making so much money, they didn't have any interest in the job, so they took me. And it was the beginning of my career in e-commerce and retail. I haven't looked back, and I love the industry. I love the people in the industry, and I'm still having a great time. feel very fortunate to be in this part of the economy. Cool. We want to spend a lot of time on kind of that, that, that segment there in the early days of e-commerce. But before we go there, let's kind of talk about what do you do today? Like, so, um, you know, you've, you've know everyone in e-commerce and everything, and, and uh, you're leveraging that in some cool ways. Tell us, tell us about what Scott Silverman Associates is up to. So broadly, I describe myself as a digital retail connector. And um, what that means is that I put together different gatherings of e-commerce leaders. I have a few different businesses that are tied into that. Uh, I started and run two conferences um, with two different sets of partners. One is focused on cross-border and international e-commerce called the Global E-Commerce Leaders Forum. And we do that two times a year. I do that with uh, my partners are Jim Akamura and Ken Allen. Uh, the next one is February 9th here in New York. Okay. Uh, and then we do one in LA in the fall. And then I have. These are more boutique, right? So 500 to 1,000 kind of people? A little bit smaller than that, more like okay. three, 350. Okay. It's been growing. Yeah. But it's, a, it's an exciting part of the industry. Uh, very complicated. I mean, uh, my reason for going into that particular topic is it's one where if you go to a lot of conferences, you'll see one or two sessions, high level. Um, help you make the decision of should I go into international? Should I sell in China, Mexico, wherever? But when you start getting into the details of how do I localize payments, 
Um, do I tr- do translations in this country or not? Um, Who's going to sit on WeChat 24-7 and answer questions about my products? Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> Stuff like so, that that really matters. Uh, so I like finding these uh, topics that I think are underrepresented in the you know broader uh, industry in terms of conferences. And the other one that I'm doing is called Grow Commerce. That's at the end of July in New York. I'll be uh, going into the third year of that. And that's focused on e-commerce customer acquisition and growth. So both conferences I'm uh, excited to be a part of, and they're a lot of fun to uh, find speakers and, uh, and to produce those. And as your kind of role as pollinator in the e-commerce world, you do – I know some folks you've helped kind of place in other places, and you, have, you typically have a really good idea of, like, who's hiring, what kind of role, and you, you've kind of facilitated yep. some of that in the I've past. I've dabbled there. a little bit in recruiting, and I – you know, anyone that wants to reach out to me that's either looking for a new role or trying to fill someone, I just try to be helpful. I, I don't do it professionally. Uh, I mean, I dabbled in that a little bit, but – Stop doing that because I got busy and all the other things that I'm doing. But I kind of have an open doors. If anyone wants help, just let me know, and I'm, I'm happy to make some introductions. Nice. That's a total first-world problem. Um, so we alluded to at the beginning of the show the origins of shop.org, and I, I know you were there. So maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit more about how shop.org came to be and what the initial – Sort of objective was yeah. It's fun to tell the story because I think a lot of people don't uh, realize what happened in the early days. So Shop.org started in 1996 as an independent organization. They were being run by an association management company. They had a vibrant organization, conferences, board of directors, and so on. Um, over time, they decided that they wanted to get associated with a larger trade association and they actually put out an RFP to be acquired. And I, at the time was, uh, had started at NRF in 1999. I, I mentioned earlier this position of director of internet retailing. Um, and I created the poorly named, um, internet retailing advisory council or IRAC, uh, <laughs> so, which I, uh, still get, um, people giving me a hard time about that to this day. It's better than ISIS. Like, I always feel bad for that, uh, that payment company that was ISIS before ISIS. Yeah. And they had to That's a good ISIS. comeback. I, yeah. I will keep that in mind. Yeah. So, uh, I had created this community of internet retailing executives from the NRF membership. And we had our very first meeting, I think it was in like May of 1999. Uh, one of your past guests, David Belotsky, when he was still at Goldman Sachs, was our guest speaker. He came in and presented his point of view from Goldman Sachs on uh, on internet and, and the impact it's going to have on retail. Um, and then I, I was actually listening to his podcast, and it sounds like he was pretty far along in starting Uncommon Goods, even when he was there. I had no idea at the time. So this community started building, and eventually uh, NRF uh, applied or you know, participated in the RFP. The Shop.org board at the time agreed to be acquired by NRF. And so everything that I had been doing under IRAC got combined with what Shop.org was doing. We called it the new Shop.org within NRF, NRF's digital division. And then I, um, within a little bit of time, began running that organization. Um, so it that was, was a, 2001, 2002? Uh, this was in like January of 2001, um, you know, greatly timed with the dot-com collapse. So um, within about three months, we lost, I think, half of our members. And had a pretty Pets. tough com. time. And the other thing uh, that's interesting 
uh, one of the challenges that we had to overcome was the very first annual summit for shop.org was scheduled for September 11th, 2001. So that one obviously never happened. Uh, the first one happened in 2012. But between what happened with the economy from 9-11 and the dot-com collapse, uh, we were just crawling and scratching to rebuild the organization. You didn't really have the omni-channel guys bought in either, right? So it was really the pure plays at that point, mostly. There was a couple omni-channel guys dabbling, but it was really mostly the pure plays, right? They were The, the, the omni-channel folks liked telling the story of how they were – uh, in an office in the basement uh, with, you know, very, very few resources. Nobody believed in the Internet at the time. Um, that's one of the things that really drew me to the industry is this uh, uh, underdog um, kind of mentality within e-commerce and especially around the omni-channel folks that they were always the true believers that this was going to be a huge business opportunity. But they were constantly fighting for resources and to get respect within the industry. So it's great to see, like at a show like NRF, where digital is such a prominent topic now. I mean, it took a long time, but I really uh, uh, just kind of believed in that, and that that really was fuel for me to be around those underdogs. Like that, that's a a great theme. Is that these things that seem so obvious in hindsight and are so easy to look back and go, oh, well, of course, that's how it's going to evolve are anything but obvious when you're you're living through them. Um, and another one of those things I sort of associate with you is today we all take for granted that, you know, the day after Thanksgiving would be this this huge shopping day. And, you know, I think Cyber Monday is a super recognized uh, term and event in popular culture. Uh, but that wasn't true back then, was it? No. So... One of the things we had been doing for a while was research on the industry, and we would do some consumer research, and we would survey the members, and we began seeing this trend of a big surge in shopping the Monday after Thanksgiving. Uh, at the time, I was working closely with Ellen Davis, who was running PR for NRF. She was such an amazing partner uh, for shop.org. She's uh, continued with NRF and is doing some amazing things with their foundation and in some other areas. But um, we always had this really strong PR machine, thanks to Ellen. And we never imagined that Cyber Monday was going to be as big as it was. So we issued a press release about a week before uh, the Monday after Thanksgiving. And I think it was 2005. The Wall Street Journal picked it up. And from there, it snowballed. And the next thing you knew, uh, I'm watching The Daily Show, and they're doing a bit on Cyber Monday. Uh, and it was on every late-night TV show. And, of course, at the time, retailers had no idea it was coming, so they, never, they couldn't prepare, uh, do anything like that. And the other thing that happened was I did have the foresight to, uh, to register CyberMonday.com, and um, the... The outcome of CyberMonday.com, I think, is the thing that I'm most proud of, of my time at shop.org. And we can go into that in a little bit. I can talk more. I mean, Cyber Monday overall, was it was always fun. Um, again, getting to this underdog uh, kind of mentality, I was constantly fighting, you know, whether it was with Business Week, Comscore, I think... Uh, Amazon's head of PR that, you know, in the early days was resisting this and nobody wanted to believe it. They, everybody wanted to make their own mark by kind of taking Cyber Monday down a notch. And now, of course, it's 
continues to be the biggest shopping day. Maybe it won't be. Maybe that'll um, go away. Um, I don't know if next year, but you know, over the next three or four years. But it was a lot of fun. I, I mean, I I enjoyed the fight with that. When you when you guys put out that first press release, what, were you reacting to data you saw where you could you were hearing from your members that that Monday was big, and you just decided let's name that, or did you decide let's name something and hope it's big? Which, which no, kinda, that was exactly was it. it. We, we, the, there was there was, the, it was already happening, and at the time there were a few factors. One was that uh, people would go into their office because at the you know that back then in two thousand and five, uh, Wi Fi wasn't or high-speed internet wasn't as prevalent in people's homes. So it was, you had better Wi-Fi or uh, connectivity in your office. So a lot of people would want to go into their office and shop. The other thing, and this, you know, applies still today, is it's nice to shop in your office when you don't have, you know, loved ones around you looking over your shoulder and when you're trying to surprise them with a gift. Yeah, And bosses love it. Yes. Well, but it, that's just one of several days, like with March Madness, that you just you know yeah. have to write off productivity. Yeah. Um, it's for a good cause, Scott. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, I'm curious. Was the name like? Did you put a lot of thought into that? And was there debate and brainstorming, or was it sort of one of those things that just came up and you didn't think about it that much? And now it's tossed around some different names, like Blue Monday. I think for the uh, hyperlink color, Kmart guys would have loved that. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it was. I think Green Monday. Uh, and we came Information up with Information Superhighway Monday. Monday? I, I think it was That's probably... That's what they used to call Bill Gates' proposal. It was probably yeah. the weirdest name. It was kind of an outdated name, but I think it ended up sticking. It, 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 it's, I think because it was a little odd, it had some staying power, and I don't know. You know, it is. it, 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 it turned into this big thing, and I, I don't know exactly why, but I'm happy it did. Nice. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's, it's not all the listeners know, but, uh, we all, always have a second guest booked on this show for the second hour. And just unfortunately so far, we've always ran out of time. So Jeff Bezos has never made it on our show. Um, but, uh, if I'm recalling correctly, he was an early speaker at shop.org. He was, uh, this was in, I was looking it up before I, um, came on, I think it was 2006, uh, at the time uh, our ch- the chairman of Shop.org was Elaine Rubin, uh, who probably a lot of your listeners know her. Um, she had been chairman of uh, Shop.org for a number of years. Shout out to Elaine. Woohoo! Yes, and uh, one of her, you know, one of the roles that she had in the industry was running enterprise sales for Amazon. This is when they were actively trying to convince retailers to use Amazon's technology to power their e-commerce sites like they were doing with Barnes and Noble and Target and all the other companies that ended up suing Amazon, uh, you know, later down the road. And because he had a sales pitch, he was willing to come to shop.org and talk to us. I honestly can't remember. I think it was a sales pitch, but I don't remember him making any kind of bold predictions or doing anything, but it was just cool to have him there. Cool. Um, so you hinted that there was another outcome of, of Sh- uh, Cyber Monday. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So we, as I, as I mentioned, I registered CyberMonday.com, and we didn't know what we were going to do with it. Uh, I had a very unfortunate thing happen. One of my coworkers, Ray Greenlee, who was the VP of membership and research, passed away from lung cancer in 2005, I believe it was, in the fall. And we... 
attempted to raise money to create a scholarship fund in his name and went through the traditional methods of going to members and other people and asking them to make donations. And we collected some money. And, you know, I was very grateful for the people that donated that. But then we had this idea of maybe CyberMonday.com will get a lot of traffic. And what if we create a website where all of this traffic can go and we can make some money from it. So we partnered with a company, uh, it's now called Cartera Commerce. Uh, they built the website. It's basically an affiliate site. So all of the members were putting their deals on CyberMonday.com. We were getting a lot of press continuously from the effort that we had already. And sometimes they were direct mentions of CyberMonday.com. And I think in the first year, our cut of the affiliate commissions was something like $350,000. And I remember being in a shop direct board meeting, proposing this and getting like a, some you know grumpy responses like, oh, back of the envelope, this is never going to work. But we decided to do it anyway. And I think they've raised over $3 million for the Ray Greenlee Scholarship Fund. So it's uh, awesome to have it in Ray's name. Uh, I think his, it makes his family really proud. I think it's a great thing for Shop.org to have such a strong uh, organization that is donating money to students that are pursuing careers in e-commerce. And it makes me so proud when I uh, am at the Shop.org annual summit, or I guess it's NRF's digital show uh, is what it's called now, and they always have the finalists for the Ray Greenlee Scholarship. And now they're giving, I think, uh, maybe one or two people a year getting um, upwards of $25,000 in tuition assistance. So that makes me so proud, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know about Jason, but I've spoken to some of those kids before, and, and uh, they're really amazing. It's always, you know, everyone gives these millennials this bad rap that they're slackers and live in their parents' basement and stuff. And you meet some of these kids that are getting these scholarships, and, man, they are go-getters. And they're all just kind of like, you know, they linked in you five seconds after you meet them, and they're trying to meet this person and that person. They're just really an impressive set of new folks coming into the industry. I think here's an idea for shop.org is – it's been a number of years since we've had these uh, students. There, many of them are in the workplace now. We, there should be a whole panel discussion at one of the events where you have former scholarship winners talking about what they're doing in the industry. So I, th- I think there's there's even more that could be done with that. That's a, that's a terrific idea. I, I've been lucky enough to be a judge the last few years, um, and the you know all the kids put together these elaborate um, submission packets. And often there's a uh, part of the exercise is to do a mock proposal for a retailer. Uh, and I'll frequently see proposals that I could easily take to that, that retailer and that would be well-received. I mean, it's amazing. Have you ever done that before? Just put Jason on there, scratch out. You know, Not Sarah as far as anyone knows. <laughs> Here, Walmart, here's my proposal. <laughs> exactly. I think they would know because it would be much more creative than my proposals usually are. It would kind of out like, me. Wow, Jason's stepping up his game. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I got influencer, not innovator, Scott. Okay. All right. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So tell us some more stories from that the kind of golden ages of shop.org. What are some things that, that stick in your mind? I mean, I, I just remember overcoming some of the challenges. So, um, you know, in addition to the period after 9-11 and the dot-com implosion. Then we had a period where uh, there was the Great Recession. It's like 2008, 2009. And 
Um, I'm just so proud of the, the team at Shop.org and NRF um, and the brand that the organization became because it, it, there was such a legal, uh, loyal following to Shop.org and it finally paid off. So when we saw in 2000, whatever the recession was at its worst and every conference was down on attendance except Shop.org, which was up. And I think that was a testament to the, uh, the leadership uh, within the board of directors, the loyalty, the way that they support the organization. So that, that was, um, you know, some, something that I'll, I'll never forget. One of the things I think that's also unique is the digital summit travels around, you know, most shows go and they'll just like anchor somewhere. So like internet retailers been at Chicago since I think day one, um, you know, shop talks anchored around Las Vegas. But one of the things that's interesting, digital summit kind of travels around what, what was the original? Do you remember the, were you involved in the thinking around that? Was that a conscious decision or it was just so like, it, oh, my God, we need to plan next year's show. Where are we going to be? <laughs> selecting cities for conferences is, uh, is always challenging because there are a ton of opinions. It's really hard. To, like I, There's very little data that you can look at that's going to predict whether the, that particular city is going to be really good or not. And there's always an argument for having it in the same city year after year. We had been in Las Vegas for a number of years and – of course, people get tired of Las Vegas. Some people hate Las Vegas. And so we started looking at some different areas and beginning with where there were concentration of retailers or, you know, certain criteria you have to have an airport that's easy to fly into. And I think the first time after Vegas was we were in Dallas and another Steelers shout out. Uh, and a shout out to my friend Tom Giacoloni from Vera Bradley. He brought a terrible towel with me. We had our big evening event in, I, I guess it's now called AT&T Stadium. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I got to wave my terrible towel in the middle of the field in the, among Dallas. They really should have never left, let me do that. But um, thanks to Tom Giacomoli, I was able to do that. Yeah, I remember that. That was like the, one of the best corporate events I've ever been to. Everyone, you know, we could kick field goals, the cheerleaders. It was like really cool. Attempted to kick field goals. I, I, don't, I didn't get any through. Yeah. yeah, that was definitely my favorite corporate event because I met my wife at that event. That's, that's oh. where, where we first met. Uh, and I did kick a field goal and had a groin pull for about six months after that, I think. Was it good? Uh, uh, the field goal? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not the groin pull. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> the groin pull sucked. The field goal... Uh, That's how he met his wife. He was laying yeah. on the ground. Oh, have, I'm dying. Uh, Can I help you, we, sir? Yeah, well, in, in fairness, I, I played a lot of soccer uh, going in, so it wasn't it wasn't shocking. And thankfully, uh, we have a saying, there's no pictures in the scorecard. It wasn't, it wasn't pretty, uh, but it went through the uprights. Um, and I, I do recall... Uh, the Steeler fans defiling the star. Um, but I, almost more funny, there were a bunch of Redskin fans. And it, to me, it's just funny that there are Redskin fans. Right. Um, but they smuggled jerseys in. And I remember a bunch of them putting on their jersey and surrounding the star and taking a, a, a picture while they were mocking, uh, you know, probably an inappropriate act. On the star, and I like if I were Dallas, I would I would uh, never let let fan, uh, opposing fans on my field ever again. Well, Jerry Jones makes money from it, so that's he's probably willing to overlook that. Exactly. Yeah. 
Cool. So, um, so you've, you've had this long storied career and you're still very involved in the industry and you're, you're, you're you know, you spend a lot of time thinking about cross border trade and stuff like that. What are some of the trends and you're an avid Jason Scott listener. Uh, so what are some of the trends that you think are, are most interesting that are top of mind with retailers? Let's just like keep it the time frame right now. It's just current. Like what are, what's top priorities in 2017 for a lot of the retailers you talk to? Yeah, so one of the other things that I do that I should mention for context of providing a couple uh, ideas on that is I have a business where I get hired by e-commerce software companies and I host dinners with say 15 or so people. I do about 40 of these uh, a year in all the major U.S. cities. So I'm hearing, I'm in these conversations constantly with retailers. So um, there are a few topics that are very popular. I mean, Amazon, uh, is the number one topic that gets people both excited and agitated. Um, the the how do you compete with them? Where do you compete with them? Uh, that you know, I, I think everybody has a little bit of a different take on that. I think everybody uh, is looking at things like customer experience uh, or the idea of let's go where Amazon is not and uh, take an approach like that. But yeah, that that's a, a topic that. Uh, never gets old. Uh, people are always eager to talk about that. What's the Scott Silverman advice? So if a, let's say a multi-brand retailer like a Macy's, but not specifically comes to you and says, Scott, what should we do about Amazon? What's your, what's, what's I mean, your sage it's, it's advice? stuff that you guys have talked about. Um, you're not going to compete with them on convenience and price. I think the private, if you're a retailer selling third-party products, then find a way to get private label products in there uh, or be a brand. Uh, and I think that's one of the best ways that you're going to not have to feel the effects of Amazon as much as a traditional retailer that's selling products. And I, I think the other part would be uh, service and leverage your expertise. So if you have a uh, if you're a store based retailer, you have an army of associates and put them to work for you uh, in some way to deliver that expertise that. Um, that Amazon isn't able to do because they want to automate everything. Got it. Cool. What else? Uh, Omnichannel. So uh, I think that continues to be a topic. It was interesting um, listening to your prediction show, and I think Jason, you were mentioning attribution um, being an issue, being a t- uh, like one of your predictions that they're going to figure out attribution. And it's uh, one of the very first things I did, even before at NRF, even before the shop.org acquisition is we did the very first research that demonstrated the impact that online was having on offline. When we actually took, uh, hired a survey company to be, to go in front of stores as people walked out and asked them, did you look at this product online before you made your purchase? And we had the first set of data to establish, like establish what everybody knew already, but that was 1999 and this is 2017, and you're finally predicting that they're going to figure out attribution. And I'm nervous about the prediction. <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's just, I think everybody knows that it's happening. Um, nobody has a, the, 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 the final number on, like, how much, where do I think about my investments in this area to make it, to, to, 
to kind of follow along with the what the actual consumer behavior is. So that one, it just doesn't get old. And uh, it, it's an, always an interesting topic. The, my other thought on Omnichannel is I'm a big fan of the basics. The things that I see moving the needle the most are things like inventory, visibility, uh, when you ways to optimize ship from store by you know tools that may help you um, lower safety thresholds, expose more inventory, things that are um, helping with returns, preventing returns. I see those have the big the, the, the biggest immediate impact um, on on this topic of omnichannel. I know omnichannel is a funny thing. I mean, I. I think at the core of it, it's really about inventory visibility. I mean, if you were to take everything away, there's all these multi-touch point, you know, experiences. But I think, you know, if you can't figure out the inventory part of it, you're really not doing omnichannel. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's, it's funny. We were talking with some analysts about that this week. Um, when Omnichannel first be- started becoming a buzzword, like all, all of these thought leaders like quickly put together these checklists, like what are the Omnichannel experiences? And there were, there were all these scorecards, like which retailer checked the most boxes? And it was like buy online, pick up in store, buy online, ship to store, all, all these different experiences. And they'd, you know, they'd come out and it would be like Sears and Best Buy are the Omnichannel leaders and you know, so-and-so is a, a laggard or whatever. Um, and the reality is like, the scorecards always focused exclusively on the customer experience and never those fundamental things like just simply unlocking inventory and making it available everywhere. So often, you know, re- retailers got sort of credit in the press for doing superficial omnichannel rather than like really making the organizational changes necessary to embrace it. So Omnichannel is a good jump-off point. We we talk a lot about Mulligan, you know, which is this, and, and here we are in January at NRF, and there's been probably more store closures announced than, uh, and I think the limited just closed you know, a couple hundred stores. Um, what do you think about that? Having kind of watched this, does it feel like it's accelerating, and we're kind of we're going to see this mass exodus of of traditional retail and. Um, you know, we one one thing that causes is malls. You know, if you have, you're a mall and you have a couple of these anchor tenants that are in trouble, then that whole mall. You know, I've seen reports that up to twenty, thirty percent of some malls are are at risk. Uh, what's your view from kind of the front lines on that? I, well, maybe we can cut this out. I, I I don't have much of a point of view on the malls. So, yeah. uh, you live in New Jersey. You're like I live the in, home of malls. Well, I live in New Garden Jersey, State. and uh, when I go to Short Hills Mall, I mean, it's one of the. It's an A mall. It's probably one of the like probably the most lucrative malls in the country. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, but I avoid going there cause I don't want to deal with the parking. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's every luxury brand. So I'm, I'm, I, I'm not in the habit of spending $400 for a t-shirt. So, um, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'll go in there and get a cup of coffee at Starbucks, but yeah. generally I'm, I'm trying to buy everything online, but I imagine, uh, in the early days of digital commerce, uh, there were, there's a lot of conversation around, like, oh, is this putting retail out of business? It was sort of a either-or sort of uh, thing. And obviously, we're, it seems like we're still having those kind of conversations together. Um, in your mind back then, was, was digital commerce something that was going to replace retail or something that was going to augment it? And I'd be curious if your uh, perspective has changed over the last 15 years. I, my perspective really hasn't changed. I think it's always been about augmenting it. Uh, I think the digital, you know, I was always a 
a believer that it was going to grow and have a huge impact on the store experience, every part of, of retail. I think the argument that, that was incorrect was the either or. Like it's either going to be the pure plays are going to take over the world or the store-based retailers are going to win. You know, it was a fight of that. And I think where we're seeing things play out is the uh, the omni-channel retailers are continuing to up their game, invest more in digital. And I mean, how many, you know, millennials are thinking about pure play versus omni-channel? They're just thinking about what is a good experience? Who has the product that I want the most? Where do I go and get it? What's the easiest way to get it? So I, I think that's always been like product and uh, the passion around product is the one thing about retail that's never changed and it's always there. Well, I totally appreciate that because I'm always the, it's it's both and, and uh, Scott is of course like uh, digital is going to crush retail and I was sort of worried two Scots against one Jason that I might be outnumbered, but I'm, I'm glad to see you're on the, on the winning team. I mean, it's, I think it's interesting to see how a lot of the early e-commerce companies or the, the e-commerce startups, they, they all seem to grow really quickly at first. They get to say a hundred million in revenue, and then they have a really hard time getting past that and scaling. So you see uh, like Nasty Gale file, filing for bankruptcy and other companies in the same vein having that challenge. And I, you know, you look at these omni-channel retailers, many of them are north of a billion in revenue, and there's a huge gap between these startups and there. And when you hear all of the hype about the startups that are going to be taking over, I mean, aside from Amazon, maybe Wayfair and a few others, um, they haven't been taking over. And I, you know, I, I think, yes, they're all struggling. And you talked about many of them being at death's door, but they have scale. And that says that's that's huge that they have accomplished that. And it's something that many of these other startup retailers haven't quite been able to get to that point. And will they ever? And then the question is, are we in a new era where, you know, there are not billion dollar you know, retailers being born every day. Is it a whole sea of small niche retailers? There's a, uh, a VC, uh, Lawrence Lanahan, it used to be at First Mark, and now he has a new company called Resonance where he's incubating these small apparel companies. And he wrote a blog post that I think was really interesting. This was three or four years ago saying the days of the billion dollar brand are over. And you look at a company like Lululemon kind of being the last big brand to come out of there. And from there, you have all of these niche brands. So you look at like a company like Lululemon, and now there's four or five companies that are making products in their particular category, but that's all like in a particular narrow area, and that's all they're making. But you can only grow so big that way. But I, I, I think it's interesting to think about is that the shape of things to come or, you know, or will we not have these behemoths besides Amazon or not? So super fragmented little mini brands instead right. of like the big giant ones. Interesting. Let's, um, so it's the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone. Happy, happy 10 year birthday iPhone. Um, so let's see, you were probably still at shop.org when it came out. Uh, so Oh seven. Yes. Um, ha, you know, we're clearly in this kind of point where mobile is, is, you know, 
everyone agrees it's material from you know for almost all retailers it's over half the traffic some are approaching half the transactions did that happen faster than you thought it would or slower because i remember flip phones people were like oh my god we're going to buy stuff this way and you had to go you know you had to hit to type in something you had to hit if you want to hit c you had to do like the one key three times and then wait <laughs> I mean, I don't think I'm different than anyone else. I mean, it happened faster than everybody imagined. And uh, that's probably the second most popular topic that comes up at the dinners that I do is the angst around mobile. And I I don't envy any retailer um, for, for what they have to deal with with mobile. The investment that they have to make in yet another customer experience with being blind to uh, the uh, the particular impact of it, how much of the mobile experience is driving a transaction or not, and there's still so little data uh, available to the retailers, yet they're forced to make these investments in the mobile experiences. And then even within the mobile experience, are you optimizing for a transaction? Are you optimizing for uh, like augmenting the store experience or some other use case within mobile. And when it's the small little device, I mean, how many like optim, like optimized use cases can you have on that particular device or app? It's, I, again, I, like I said, I don't envy the retailers for what they have to do there. So I'm, I'm happy to sit on the sidelines and, uh, and listen and hear what they're doing with that. Yeah. Um, and that, that one is funny because it, it keeps evolving, right? Like the you, uh, retailers will sort of catch up to some, you know, some sort of perceived benchmark. And then the, the industry keeps moving the finish line on that one. And it's, uh, Scott and I have spent hours on the show talking about the, the mobile gap and the challenge and conversion on mobile devices versus uh, tablets and desktops. But one that's coming up more for me, which is interesting, is this whole... Uh, Digital is a much more closed loop for refinement. So we build a website, we test something. Uh, if it works, we deploy it. If it doesn't work, we iterate it really fast. And we have, to your point, great analytics. Um, and so we've really improved these digital experiences quickly. It's much harder to improve a store experience. Um, and so now we've taught customers that there are these super important things when you're shopping, like ratings and reviews, Nobody has ratings and reviews in the store. And so this new version of mobile I'm talking a lot with retailers about is, uh, gosh, how do we create a digital experience in the store? And, of course, stores are all overstored, so they're closing stores. They don't have big CapEx budgets, so we're not putting a lot of screens and technology in the store. And what that leaves is, man, we got to get the customer using that mobile device in the store for a very different experience than they would use it for at home, which, which, you know, I think is interesting. Yeah. I have a fun story. I was at target yesterday and I had to change lines because the lady in front of me was trying to cartwheel her stuff. And, you know, you go in these targets and they push cartwheel and there's no connectivity and the Wi-Fi was, you know, she couldn't figure that out. And it was just like a total train wreck. So some of these things sound really good until you're in practice and the lady's taking 30 minutes to connect her cartwheel. I I, I think, (laughs) Hey, what part of that story was fun? Uh, I mean, the the biggest, uh, uh, you know, one of the biggest things I think that doesn't get invested enough when it comes to mobile or omni-channel is people. And because it's the store associates that you are, that retailers are depending on to execute the, all of their strategies. So you, you could invest, 
you know, millions and millions of dollars in an app or something that's engaging people in the store. Maybe it's showing them reviews. But if the the people working in the stores are not embracing it in, in a material way, then these things are all going to fall flat. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually uh, one of the big themes that uh, I've seen at this show this year. Uh, the first day was totally dedicated to that employee training and the value of that. And I know, uh, like, Kip uh, Kendall, the uh, current current chair of the Interrupt Board, was talking about how they've done these these analytics and the average retailer invests eight hours of training in an associate and his company invests 240 hours. Um, it's Container Store is his company. Oh, gosh, yep. sorry. Um, and uh, Walmart, uh, Greg Ferran, the president of Walmart US, was here, and, you know, they famously right. jacked up their their um, hourly wage for associates, but they also made a major new investment in training, and he was sharing that they had a total measurable improvement in all the store KPIs, their, their fast, easy, friendly KPIs after they, they improved that, that associate training. So you should uh, ed- re-edit your predictions, and someone should add that, because like, I think that's going to be really shaping the industry is like that's where maybe a lot of the investment that's going to pay off the most in omni-channel is investments in salary and training for the store associates to bring these omni-channel plans to life in a way that they haven't been able to re-edit the uh, annual forecast yeah no editing on that one okay it's set in stone i'm gonna Um, keep an eye on jason on that and of course tens of thousands of listeners have already heard it and weighed in so it'd be hard to change at this point So that's a good thing. So you've been here at NRF for a bit. Tell us, so it sounds like the associate training and that kind of stuff is important. What else are you seeing here at the show? Uh, I, you know, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing to be at the show this year because we're, there's so much disruption happening in the industry. Um, we're seeing, uh, it, you know, this, this dichotomy of uh, retailers that are, you know, shutting down or going bankrupt. And then you have the optimism of digital and it's all kind of in the same place. And when you see the cross section of that or the intersection of that is in things like these ideas to spend more on training or change management or, you know, your team overall. So I I think that's a really interesting trend. I mean, there's also, I mean, there's a lot of shiny objects, um, especially in this innovation lab um, that we're in. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see. And I see the retailers engaged in w- whether it's AI or chatbots or things. So they um, are interested in investing in these. How those are going to pay off in the near term, I, I'm not sure. But um, I, I think it's uh, an interesting thing to watch that play out. Cool. Well, that's a good jumping off point. So we've been talking about kind of current trends. Let's, let's kind of fast forward and whatever time frame you're comfortable with, 3, 5, 10, 50 years into the future, what, what are some of Scott Silverman's predictions for, for what retail will look like and um, you know, how fast things are going to change? You, you've seen 20 years of change. So, uh, I, I, One area that I, I've been predicting for a while, and I, I don't know if this – maybe this isn't allowed because I predicted it and it's beginning to come true, is that – when the the leadership within retail is transforming to people that started in the digital uh, part of the business, and we're seeing those folks not just in a CMO role, but moving into a CEO role, uh, like Art Peck over at Gap, or in some private equity companies like um, Sam Taylor, who's at Oriental Training, had a whole um, kind of history in um, digital. So I think we're going to continue to see more and more of that. 
you know, the, the brand selling direct, um, I, I feel like I'm just uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, maybe I've been listening to your show too much, but I, I, do, I do think that's a continued trend is the, the brand selling direct continuing to invest because they're, the, they're, the, they're less vulnerable to Amazon than the retailer that's selling third-party products and competing on price with, with Amazon. Yeah, and you're an advisor to a vendor. Um, it used to be called Chat ID. I always forget their new name. Um, that's interesting. When I saw it, that was, that was like one of the first companies I saw very early in that brands going direct. Yeah, yeah they're, what they're doing is pretty interesting, which is kind of taking the brand selling direct and incorporating that into the retail experience. So the idea would be that if you're on the Best Buy website and you're looking at a Samsung phone, you could have a direct chat with a Samsung rep. Yeah. And everybody wins in that situation because, you know, manufacturers, you know, always believe that nobody can merchandise or talk about their products as well as they can. So now they have this direct line to the customer, but um, rather than through their own direct channel, they're using it through one of the retail partners. So yeah. and it helps them build that muscle tissue so that when people do come to Samsung.com, they, you know, they're not like, oh, my God, what do you do about a chat coming in here? And I, I know, you know, one of the brand's hugest concerns in this whole digital disruption is they're getting even further disintermediated from their customer. And so that that's an opportunity for them to have that direct relationship. I'm not sure everyone wins, though, because when that happens for Samsung, Sony does not win. Right. That's that's true. <laughs> Sony could win if they, they participated, too. So, yeah. yeah. Going uh, back to your earlier point, another great example of the digital guy getting elevated to that that uh, C-suite uh, former shop.org member uh, board member Jason LaRose is now president of Under Armour which I think is very cool yeah, yeah. right so yeah I, I think we're going to see more and more of that hopefully those guys will all be really successful and set the precedent yeah yeah they're always welcome to come back to the podcast yeah well, listen, Scott, it has happened again. We have flown through our allotted time, uh, but super grateful for you taking time out from the show to speak with us and the listeners here at the NRF Big Show. Well, I, I thank you very much for having me on. I love your podcast. You guys are doing an amazing job. I think it should be incorporated into college curriculums. There's so much that could be done with this. So uh, congrats. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And maybe uh, are you going to if you listen to this one, are you going to listen at one X or you still do one five? Uh, maybe both. And then I, I, I'm going to make my family listen to it at 50 percent. So it, okay. it'll take like two hours. for them. <laughs> nice. I'll, I'll make a special edit for you and make your voice way louder than ours for your family. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. So listen until the next show, which will be very soon. Happy commercing, everyone. Thanks, Scott. And thanks to NRF for hosting us. You've been listening to The Jason and Scott Show. For all the latest news and trends on e-commerce and shopper marketing, subscribe to us on iTunes or visit www.jasonandscott.com.